First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 through 13 is our text, and the message entitled Paul's Abounding Love. Paul had uh, ceased or had not ceased to serve the Thessalonians, as you know, since he had left, as we have seen in our previous study. His uh, undying love is seen in his attempt to return in chapter 2, verse 17 through 20. His sacrificial love is seen being willing to send Timothy and to be left alone at Athens in chapter 3, verse 6 through, um, or chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. And then we saw his joyful love that's seen as he receives um, Timothy's report of standing fast in the Lord, the Thessalonians, in chapter 3, verse 6 through 10. Now, we're going to see the abounding love of Paul for this as he prays for them. If you love somebody, you pray for them. Prayer is an incredible tool that we have. You know that you can't control or protect anybody at all times. You know that they have a sin nature and there's evil in the world. And prayer is the greatest protection that we have as we are privileged enough to pray for one another. And so let me read our text here. Now this does close the section for his service to the Thessalonians in his absence that went from chapter 2.17 to chapter 3, verse 13. Let me read our text here. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that, we may so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so Paul's prayer to God for the Thessalonians consists of three things. First, you have the prayer for them in verse 11. Secondly, you have the prayer, I'm sorry, prayer for themselves. And then secondly, you have the prayer for the Thessalonians in verse 12. And then thirdly, the prayer that had a purpose. And so first it begins with you. This is where he begins. Prayer for themselves. Look at verse 11. The apostle Paul prayed here. It's an extension and amplification of the missionaries' constant prayers for the Thessalonians. He says, now. He's dealing with the time that he's writing this letter. A continual conjunction is called to indicate what he's about to state is related to what proceeds. It could be translated, moreover. Some commentators call this a wish prayer, not a prayer. They say the optive mode in the Greek is used to express a wish or desire. And the word direct, as we will see in the optive mode um, as we move through our text. And this is his heart desire. This is where his passion. Jesus says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the fact that this Petition is the extension and expression of verse 10 
Um, it, it is a prayer in every sense. As we will see, it is addressed to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we will see, it is a very specific request. Uh, there's general prayers, but there's specific prayers that we uh, sometimes pray are very concerned, things that we're going through or things that people say, you know, keep me in prayer. I got to go have a job interview. You know, I went to the doctors. I got this bad news, and we pray specifically. Now, notice the apostles, Paul's prayer is directed to God, as we said. He says, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. The personal pronoun himself is emphatic in the Greek. The words at the beginning of the sentence, literally it says, now may he, taking the intensive form rather than the reflexive form in our English. The first person of the Trinity comes first. Notice the phrase God and Father are two titles joined by one article in the Greek describing one person in two different roles. The creator, eternal, existing one, father to those who have repented. The second person, notice the Trinity, follows. He is the co-recipient of the petition, indicating deity as with God the Father. Sometimes the Trinity drives people crazy, and they have all kinds of natural, rational, reasonable questions and objections. But the scriptures are very, very clear about all three of them being God, all co-equal, and all expressing their process in the work of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ consists of two titles and a proper name. Some people think that Lord Jesus Christ is first, middle, and last name. It is not. Lord Curios means master. He to whom a person or thing belongs to. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. Christ Christos means anointed Messiah, the Son of God. Here he's, the indication is deity, God himself. And Jesus, Isusos, means Yahweh's salvation. The Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, identifying his humanity. So you have the God-man, the incarnation. Literally in the Greek, the Lord of us, Jesus, Jesus standing in opposition to Lord, identifying the Lord with the human Jesus, the God-man. There can be no mistake about that. And yet how many deny that Jesus was God as well as that he was human and that human and God can't be one? And yet that's exactly what the Bible teaches. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and God was the Word. And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1, 1 and 14. This is the incredible love of God. Now, notice the address directed to both persons of the Trinity implies one is a family here. The personal pronoun our is stated for both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The personal pronoun indicates personal possession and relationship. 
prior to being born again, we could not say our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We weren't saved. We didn't know him. We were spiritually dead. Paul includes himself, Timothy, and Silas, and the Thessalonians. He had no special access. The middle wall of partition had been broken down, Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. And so as you, write, as you read the epistles of Paul in this epistle of the Bible, you see that these men came down to men. They didn't exalt themselves above men. They were one with them. They were from among them. This is very important. The address to both persons of the Trinity implies oneness in the Godhead also. Jesus said, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. Jesus told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father in John 14.9. He said, if you see me, you've seen the Father also. Philip, have I been so long with you? The address to both persons of the Trinity implies both are co-equal then. Because both are God. First, because only God can and will answer prayer. No one else can. He not only knows what we should pray for, and he knows what we shouldn't pray for, and he knows what he's going to answer and what he's not going to answer, and he knows the reason why he won't answer. And sometimes we don't have because we don't ask, and sometimes we don't have because we've asked for the wrong motive and reason, James tells us. There's a lot of things involved in prayer. Co-equal, both are God. First, because only God, again, can answer prayer. And secondly, prayer is not to be offered to anyone but God. That would be idolatry. Many of us came out of the Catholic Church, and we used to pray to our saints, our rosary, the stations of the cross, um, lighting candles and praying to the virgins and saints and everything. And yet, they have eyes they can't see, they have hands they can't handle, they have feet they can't walk, and those that worship them become just like them, blind, deaf, and crippled spiritually because only God can answer prayer. Jesus said, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you in John 16, 23. For there is one God and one meter between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. So the Bible is very clear as to who we're to pray to and how we're to pray in the chain of command. In that day you shall ask me nothing. You will ask the Father in my name. There's a chain of command that he gives. The Holy Spirit is a silent witness of Jesus Christ. We're never commanded to pray to the Holy Spirit. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. That's the chain of command that he gives us. Notice the prayer was a petition for God to direct their way to the Thessalonians. It says, direct our way to you. The missionaries had been directed by God to the Thessalonians the first time, as you know, and they didn't want to return any other way. Sometimes we um, 
God may do something and open a door or whatever it may be, and then we automatically think that it's going to happen again or we can just go again. Lord, do you want me to go there? I'm to ask him, do you want me to do this? Do you want me not to do this? Otherwise, we start calling the shots. The word director means uh, to make straight by removing the obstacles. And it's found two times or two more times in the New Testament. So in other words, we, we saw how Paul was uh, preaching in Bithynia and Asia Minor, and the Holy Spirit told him not to, hindered him, okay? And that's the way he was guiding him, by saying no. God will guide you and me often by saying no. A no from God, you should be as excited over a no than a yes. Just the same, because it's God answering, directing, and guiding me. The word is used of the prophecy of John the Baptist who would um, proclaim the Messiah and gospel to guide our feet into the way of peace in Luke 1, 79. The word is used of the Lord to direct their hearts into the love of God and the patience of Christ in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. The word direct is in singular, and yet the subject is plural, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The strongest way to indicate the oneness of the Father and the Son. The strongest way to indicate the deity of Jesus being God. As a husband and wife, the two shall become one flesh. And whatever God has joined together, let no man put asunder or divide or separate. The oneness. Notice the specific request implies certain things. It implies complete dependency on God for the right time, even as he guided them through Phrygia, Galatia, forbidding them, as I said, to preach in Asia and Bithynia, bringing them to Asia, down to Troas, where he received the vision for the man of Macedonia, and then they realized that he wanted them to go there to Philippi in Acts 16, 6 through 10. God directed them. God guided them. It also implies complete dependency on God for the right door. Even though he brought them to Philippi, to Lydia, at the riverside, the demon-possessed girl and the jailers in Acts 16, 11 through 40, it doesn't mean that he wanted them back right now, maybe. And this is a lesson for us that we don't get caught up in, well, this is the way, you know, we, you know through the years of ministry, 40-some years of ministry, uh, we understand that God may open doors, but then we don't know what he wants to do. Lord, do you want us to continue this or not? Lord, do you want us to go back to the same place or not? We, we don't take anything for granted or that, you know, it's on cruise control and we can just start making decisions. Uh, we want, in Acts 13 it says, And the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry which I have called them. The Holy Spirit called them out to the mission field. The church did not send Barnabas and Saul out to the mission field. They didn't get a missionary committee and started voting and seeing their qualifications and then tell them they had to raise funds up before they could go. The Holy Spirit called them out and they went. And maybe that's why missions has failed so drastically because men send men instead of the Holy Spirit sending men and women to the mission field. Good question to ask. 
It implies complete dependency on God for protection. From Philippi to Thessalonica to Athens to Corinth, Acts 17 to 18:17, all the things they went through. The places we've gone through the 40-some years, uh, some places that were pretty hostile, pretty dangerous. We were there in Guatemala when the war was going on and everything. We'd go the villages out in the bush and all that, and a couple of them as we evangelized and all that, the, that night when we left, they, they came in, they massacred the whole village. Different places. But again, if God sent you, then you go. I'm going to die somewhere. Either in my bed, in my car, in California, the United States, or out in the mission field. But I want to make sure I die where God wants me to die. That's the important thing. So once again, taking nothing for granted that we ask, Lord, should we go or not? The most protective way. They had left reluctantly, remember. They had been hindered by Satan as they attempted to return. And they had received word that they wanted to see them from Timothy. They were excited. And they wanted to further their faith in maturity. And that's where he's writing this letter and seeing God's confirming and opening the doors, checking the things out to go back. Our dependency on God to direct us in and throughout life should be as a blind man depending on another one to lead them, being his eyes. You never hear a blind person tell the guy who's leading, no, no, I don't, don't go there. Make a left here. He can't see. He's depending on that person to guide him. That's the same thing as us. Anyone who um, denies that Jesus is God and is really denying the inspiration of God's revelation, the scriptures. Thomas called Jesus God, my Lord and my God, in John 20, 28. Paul declared Jesus is the visible form of the invisible God, the preeminent one, creator of all things, in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Paul said the believer is to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the rapture in Titus 2.13. Our great God and Savior. Wow. The Father called Jesus God. But to the Son he said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hebrews 1.8. Peter called Jesus God. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us, be the righteousness of our Lord, by the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior. Um, and there again he calls him God. Our God and Savior. One article. Both titles. John calls Jesus God, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. People say, where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? It doesn't say that, really? Are you drunk, you loaded, or just stupid it's all over the place but people say outrageous things because they just hate God they don't want anything to do with him so they attack him 
Anyone denying the Trinity contradicts and rejects a key doctrine and element of the nature of God. There's two in Corinthians. Let me give you them. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6 says there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are diverse differences of administrations or ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diverse of activities, but it is the same God who calls and works all in all. So you have spirit, Lord, and God. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's one, and the love of God, that's the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. There's the three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, El is one. Elo, Ella is two, Elohim. An I am ending on the Hebrew words is plurality. You have the greatest place to put the Trinity, right in verse 1 of Genesis 1, in the very beginning. Three scriptures that not only give evidence to the Trinity, but their interaction and involvement in the life of believers. Uh, Galatians 4, 6 says that because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Him is Jesus Christ. You have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit right there. In 1 Peter 1.2, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Remember our, when we first started the epistle. In sanctification of the Spirit, there's a second person. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, there's the third. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Each of us as Christians are to and should always look to God for the directions of life, as I said earlier. From the very beginning of our new life, when we first repented, we knew that we knew that we had entered a relationship and everything was different. We have never walked this way before. We had never depended and trusted on God for everything. We had never read and studied the Bible. We had never prayed to God in that way, that we believe he could speak to us and guide us. We were hungry and went to church, and we studied the word, something we never did. On Friday night, Saturday night, we didn't go party anymore. We just took people to concerts and evangelized them and everything. Everything changed for every situation in life as single and married, seeing the goodness of God to open the closed doors, acknowledging God's protection also. Looking back in our lives, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we see this clearly now. Um, forward, looking forward is, is difficult. <laughs> but looking backwards... You can see very, very clear as you have that history behind you. And so the prayer was uh, for, them, for themselves to be guided back to the Thessalonians. Secondly, notice in verse 12 the prayer for the Thessalonians now. The Apostle Paul's prayer was for the Lord to make them grow in divine love. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. And so the Lord is the initiator and the source of everything in the believer's life. 
The word and is better translated as a continuing conjunction here. Their desire for God to direct them to this only was their request, but it was not the key factor for their growth in love. If they never returned, they were supposed to grow in agape love anyway, okay? So what we're praying for doesn't depend upon us. It's the relationship that individuals have with God as they grow and learn the word of God. The one who would make them grow in love would be the Lord, not them, not the missionaries. The title Lord Courier refers again to Jesus, the Father is the source, the Son is the channel, the Holy Spirit is the agent. The verb make you increase means to grow from one's present condition or state. So as Christians, we're not to be static. We're to be moving forward. We all know people who have never grown in their personal relationships with someone or they've never grown in their um, academic achievement. They just only went a certain length and that's all they stayed. Or a person who just in, the, in, in their job, they just are comfortable and they don't want to go ahead. Well, here we're to grow more and more in love, not to be static. Our whole relationship with Jesus Christ, we want to make sure we're maturing. Again, the three aspects, infants, young men, and fathers. We're to grow, develop, and mature at every level. When you bring that baby home, you make sure all the parts are there, you count them out and everything, and then you're looking next weeks and months to make sure the, arm, the arms are growing equally in proportion and that everything is symmetrical and that they are not only growing physically, but developing uh, physically and mentally. And that as they grow, they are mature to that age. It's very important. And so those are all markers. Those are all uh, things that you look at. And the same in Christ Jesus. You is in the beginning of the sentence making it emphatic. Now, you as parents and I, when I raised my children, when we want to emphasize, I'm talking to you, you, look at me. It's emphatic. The second verb, abound, means to overflow. This again is the op optative, eris, active, present tense. The second verb strengthens the first here, emphasizing one's wish for the present growth and overflowing of love in their lives. Uh, which parent doesn't desire for their children to grow and to develop and to love and to just flourish? This is what Paul is desiring. The richness of being filled with God's overflowing love. Now the person is the responder. As we said, God's the initiator. The person, the responder and, and vessel of God's enablement to grow in love. The prayer by one and the individuals yielding to God are both involved. So it's not just one-sided. The outworking of the process is the mystery in that God is willing to work and can work, but the person must yield. In other words, God will not force you 
or myself to love someone with agape love. We have the potential. But if we don't yield to God, God won't force us. Prayer does not violate the free will of the individual, but only aids the individual in his yielding to God. Notice there in 12, the apostle Paul's prayer was for their love of the believer and unbelievers to one another and to all. The primary response behind Paul's prayer was for believers to express God's love to one another. This is important. They knew all about phileo love, that emotional love that's based on feelings, emotions um, based on compatibilities. Uh, you get along with a friend and you have the same likes and dislikes, you, you basic same personalities, you, you get along and all that. And that's fine. But somewhere along the line, you'll clash because we're so different. Um, they also knew about the physical love, eros. We get our word erotic as a sexual love. It's based on the physical attraction of the opposite sex, based on the pleasurable gratification of one for the other or self. And that's legitimate in the context of marriage. But this has nothing to do with this whatsoever. And sometimes people mistaken this. They now had to come to know about yielding to God's agape love based on the new creation that they were, based on the will to obey, and based on the good and edification of the other believers in Thessalonica. The natural thing is to love yourself more than others. In fact, Paul says to husbands in Ephesians, husband, loves your wives as yourselves. In other words, if we loved our wives the way we love ourselves, our wife would go crazy. Okay? So he takes a, a sinful, normal practice of a sinner, and he transfers to the positive. That if we would do that in God's love as we do it in our sinful love for ourselves, we would be okay. Our marriage would do well. So they were known for, their, for loving each other, as you know. They had been commended for their labor of love in the past in the opening of the epistle, chapter 1, verse 3. They were loving each other in the present, chapter 4, verse 9. They would be commended for abounding in love for one another in the future in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1 and 3. So that text there in 2 Thessalonians says that they were open and obedient and had yielded to God. They were known for their love. Contagious Christianity, that's the Thessalonians. He was only there for three weeks, and they got it. <laughs> they got a bad case of Christianity. Now, notice the second purpose behind Paul's prayer was for believers to express God's love to all. To love those you love 
That's not that hard. Unless they do something. Then it's a little harder, right? We're going to get to that. But to love all unbelievers, those around you. Because the minute we come to the Lord, there's, there's a clash. There's a divide. And, and often those that we were so close to or family members that we were so close to become almost enemies sometimes. There's a, a, a animosity at times that takes place. All the unbelievers in Thessalonica are included here, all family members who would come against them in Thessalonica or anywhere else, all who would um, persecute them, um, be it in Thessalonica or anywhere else, and they were to be known for loving the unbeliever. In uh, the opening of chapter 1, verse 3, the love of God has been imparted to them, he says. In chapter 4, verse 10, they were loving the unbeliever in the present. So it's not like they weren't doing it, but he's encouraging them to keep on doing it and keep growing. They were great examples. Notice still in 12 there, the Apostle Paul's prayer was after their own example and practice. This is important. Just as we do to you. The comparison is marked by the phrase, just as. It could be translated even as or according as. They were not expecting anything they themselves were not yielding to or asking. It's always important that we as Christians never ask anybody to do something we're not willing to do. The Bible calls that hypocrisy. Because we all have the same potential to obey, but as still having a sin nature, we have the potential to disobey. And it comes at the disposing of my will under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Knowing that I can do it, and I have to reckon the old man dead, and I have to deny myself and pick up my cross and ask the Lord to empower me. That's the life of the Spirit. The missionaries had loved them and increased in their love for them. They had loved them with great agape love, the motive of, for coming for, to Thessalonica. They had loved them with agape love in their preaching the gospel to them. And they had loved them so when they were forced to leave, they were grieved and very concerned over their spiritual state. That we're loving them and writing to them this first letter and teaching them. The love of God is like um, electricity that runs through a wire. Now, the wire is made alive to benefit others, but it has no potential in itself, it's dead. It's just a wire. The wire says, man, did you see that, what I did? Boy, I lit up that house. No. The electricity did. The wire is simply an instrument. And that's what Paul is saying here. We all have the potential, whether we have the will to do that. There, there's the question that time will reveal 
situations and circumstances. Everything intellectually is easy. Everything assessed under a clean environment is fine. But when you're dealing with real life, blood and guts, you got everything going on. It's a whole different thing. That's a problem with many of the corrupt lawyers and politicians that take cases of things that happen with policemen and men on, and people on the street. And they take a case where it is legitimate to the violence that's been used. But they'll take it out of context. They'll dissect it frame by frame and interpret it in a very controlled environment. You weren't there when that policeman had five seconds to make that judgment. Either I shoot him or he's going to shoot me or shoot the other person. But the lawyer and all these politicians so pompous in a very controlled environment interpret it. It's all sanitized. The adrenaline's not running. The fear's not there. And so um, with us, we must trust the Lord for all of that. The love of God alone can keep us from our selfish sin nature. Being the fruit of the Spirit, agape love. Some basic and important principles let me give you. Those God calls, he enables without exception. God initiates and brings about growth, but it does not force a person to grow. Only I limit the ability of the love of God. I've told you many, many times that every time I have yielded to God's agape love, I have never failed. I have never been more joyous and more at peace. But when I have not yielded to agape love, I have failed drastically. And I'm the first to know it. Those that God increases and abounds spiritually are those who abide in Christ, who are in the Word, who are in prayer, who are in the church, who are in serving in the church, who are concerned about others. Agape has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Romans 5.5. 5. Agape is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Singular, fruit of the Spirit. One, agape love. All that follows, the other seven, are manifestations of agape love. They're not eight fruits of the Spirit. There's only one fruit, singular. The rest are manifestations of agape love. Very important. Agape is the evidence we are abiding in God, and he in us, 1 John 4.16 tells us. My love for my fellow Christian will be in direct proportion to my love for God. The vertical axis, remember that. Jew, Gentile, Scythian, barbarian, male, female, bond, free. We all belong to the same family. We all will spend eternity together. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those 
who are of the household of faith, the believer. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? It's basic. The believer's love for the unbeliever is evident that we fully understand the richness of God's love for sinners because we were recipients of that. We know what it is to be lost. We know how it feels to live without God. We know the consequences of that. And we have received his forgiveness, his blessings, his guidance, his wisdom. And we can see both sides of the street. When you're a non-believer, you only see a one-way street. Having been recipients of God's grace, having been forgiven for all, all of our sins, having experienced the benefits of God's love, Paul says in Romans 5, 6, for whom we, um, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. I presume you qualify. I mean, the Bible just, it's, it's like geometry. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. <laughs> Very straight and to the point. Jesus said we are to love the enemies who persecute us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. That's a toughie. In fact, it's impossible. We've never been persecuted. And so we need to know that he is able to enable us, if such is the case. The peril of the Good Samaritan is the kingdom principle for loving one's neighbor, fulfilling the law, Luke 10, 25 to 37. In fact, our laws, we have a Good Samaritan law in California, in the whole United States, it comes from the Bible. But in the past two decades, people kind of back off because of all the lawsuits <laughs> and everything else. The example of love by the believer stands as its credentials to require other believers to do the same. Jesus said agape love would be the distinguishing mark of the disciples in John 13, 35, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, 1 John 4, 11. So a constant reminder, the importance of that. So the prayer was for the growth in agape love by the Thessalonians. Now notice third and last here in verse 13. The prayer had a purpose. The apostle Paul's desire was that they have a stable heart while here on earth. 
He says, so that he may establish your hearts. So Paul declared the only um, love of God, only that can bring stability to my evil heart if I yield to agape love. Here is the application to this section. Verse 13 is the result or product of verse 12, agape love. The one doing this work is Jesus. The personal pronoun he refers to Jesus, looking back to the Lord, verse 12. Paul declared the kind of person Jesus produces through agape love. A person in love is the most, listen, dependable. A person in love is the most dependable. Jesus produces men who are dependable. The word establish means to set fast, strengthen, or fix. The idea of being one with God, having the singleness of heart. The heart cardia speaks of the inner man, who I really am. What I am in character involving the intellect, the emotion, and the will. Prior to Christ, we only had a deceitful heart and desperately wicked, ruled by our sin nature, Jeremiah 17.9. After Christ, we have a new heart, ruled by our new divine nature, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. They live side by side. Their ongoing abiding and depending on Jesus would result in ongoing strength of character, single-mindedness, and singleness of eye. You have walked with God long enough, then you know people who have not been consistent. And you know what came of their lives. You've also seen people who have been consistent, and you've seen the character of their life. It's very clear to all believers who walk with God. This is an infinitive era's active constant. Paul already reminded them of the missionary's character back in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. So they weren't doing all this for a popularity contest. They weren't doing trying to win the praise of men. Paul informed them of their concern in chapter 2, verse 17, but we, brethren having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Only love for self makes me unstable and hinders my yielding to God's love and usually deals with two areas. A person in love with self is the most undependable. What hinders a person first is what they know about a person, revealing their self-righteous. Jesus at Simon the Pharisee's house, remember, was thinking in his heart about that prostitute that came in 
And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he went on and gave him the whole parable about the debt and everything else. He said, well, the one who forgave the most. He says, well, you see this woman? She loves much because she has been forgiven much. He was self-righteous. What hindered him was what he knew about her. Wow. Second, what a person has done to you in a refusal to forgive, being uncompassionate. And really, you end up hurting yourself. Jesus gave that parable of the unforgiving servant who owed millions and was forgiven to him, and then he had a guy who owed him pennies, threw him in jail. The king recalled him. His master recalled him. And threw him in jail. Wow. Notice the apostle Paul's desire then involves the process of sanctification during their lives on earth. Blameless in holiness. So Paul reminded the believer that he is to live in a state of holiness. This is what it's talking about. The word holiness refers to the state, not the process. In holiness. It is the result of our new birth. It is the condition of living separate from sin and not practicing life any longer as a matter of practice and lifestyle. I am separated from sin to holiness. The word blameless there means um, irreproachable, faultless as to character and habit of life practice. Not sinless, not perfect. The blameless of the believer is the product of the state of holiness as a lifestyle, not the reverse. Blamefulness is due to unholiness. They are directly related to the unstable heart, which is divided. Stability of heart will result in being in a sanctified state of living and holiness, therefore being blameless as a result of yielding to the love of God. Because love always protects. Love is faithful. Love is dependable. Love can be trusted. So stability of heart will result in being in a sanctified state of living and holiness, therefore being blameless as a result to yield to the love of God. Now notice Paul and Thessalonians realized that this sanctified life indicated what God saw and knew, not man necessarily. God, our Heavenly Father, who saved us, does not merely look at the outside. He takes note of the words, the deeds, and the actions. He sees everything. God, our Heavenly Father, who saved us, looks and sees the reality of the heart, the thought, the intents, the motives, why and how I do things, why I say them. And so notice the apostle Paul's desire was that they receive reward at the coming of Christ. That's what this whole builds up to. Before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. So Paul has in mind the day when 
Christians will be rewarded for their service at the Bema Seat of Christ. The context of verse 13 is the coming of Jesus at the rapture when believers will be rewarded. It's not the second coming that he's talking about here to judge the world. He's talking about the rapture. There's a difference. People teach it wrong sometimes. It will occur at the rapture, the day of Christ. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter um, Three speaks about the Bema Seat of Christ. Uh, Romans 14, 10. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Uh, when Christ will reward us for the motives, why we've done the things we've done. Um, it will be rewarded only what, what is done with the right motive and the right attitude. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Uh, not, God's not impressed on how much we do or what we do, but why and how we do it. Jesus will be the judge. He will be the one that will reward in that day. And so Paul reminded them that one day they would stand before God, their father, the first person of the God had noticed, one who um, sent the son to make us sons and daughters of God, and the one who has committed all judgment to the son. The one who honors only those who honor the son. No one can have the father if they bypass or deny the son. Everyone is expected and accepted by the Father if they accept the Son. If you reject the Son, you forfeit the Father. It's just that simple. And so Paul indicated it would be at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word coming is parousia. It means presence, arrival, or advent. He uses the word for in the epistle four times for Jesus coming in the rapture. For his church, not the second coming. Chapter 2, 19, 3, 13, 4, 15, 5, 23. Every time the whole epistle is coming for the rapture, not the second coming. Second Thessalonians is the second coming. First Thessalonians is the rapture. And so the word is also used for the second coming to the earth in the New Testament. Um, the key is the context. Is it talking, dealing with the rapture or the second coming? So the context will determine which it is. In this case, it's the rapture here. And so the word is used by Paul's physical presence also in 2 Corinthians 10.10 and Philippians 2.12. Um, there are two other words used for the Lord's coming. The word epiphania, it means to appear, to shine through, and is used of manifestation of gods with a small g or an emperor. And there's the word apocalypsis, meaning unveiling or laying bare, like the book of Revelation, laying bare Jesus Christ. You see him as he is the high priest in chapter 1. And so the coming identifies specifically one person. The phrase our Lord, the pronoun is plural, our, to indicate their position of servant to the Lord, their master. The name Jesus, once again, Yahweh is salvation, identifying um, him as God who became man. The title Christos again, the anointed Messiah. So you have the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Paul stated Jesus would come with all his saints. Notice the reference to all his saints is to the dead saints that died physically prior to the rapture taking place as he descends to the clouds. The Thessalonians were waiting for his coming from heaven at the rapture. 
harpazo, to escape the wrath to come, chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 15 and 17. And so those who have died in Christ, they're instantly present before the Lord, but their bodies are in the ground. Whether they're buried or they're cremated doesn't make any difference. Whether Jaws ate them or anything else, it doesn't matter. God take care of that. And if the rapture happened one hour from now, all those cadavers and remains would be raptured up to meet those that are present with Jesus to receive their glorified body. We, our body will be transformed as we're going up. Read Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17. You will be harpuzzled up with them. Who's them? If them that are dead are with the Lord, they're not going up with us. They're coming down. Who's the ones going up with us? All the remains. The physical bodies have been buried. That's the first resurrection. So, some interpret the reference of saints to angels, but um, the word never is used for them, though we know that angels will accompany the coming of Jesus at the second coming. And Paul says, When Christ was our life shall appear, then you will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3 4. You know, a father desires and teaches his children to be honorable and people of character so that they may please God and reap the reward both here in life and when they go before the Lord. That's important for parents that are Christians. The nature of fallen man is evil, as you know. From the beginning, Genesis 6, 5, it says, And the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Nothing has changed since Genesis. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leper his spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Jeremiah 13, 23. Wow. The heart of a Christian can and will manifest evil if he or she is not living a sanctified life. Either you will walk in the spirit or you walk in the flesh. You can't do both at the same time. Impossible. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what communion has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with unbelievers? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. That's for every Christian, for every time, every age. Again, Paul uh, says in Ephesians 5, 18, 21, And do not be drunk with wine and dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And Paul once more says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess their own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. First Thessalonians 4, 3-5. 
The reward or loss of reward for believers will be at the Bema Seat of Christ. Are you looking for his coming? Tell you to see the world, how bad it's getting? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. There are five crowns promised to the saints. I'm not going to give them to you. Look them up. We've done a whole series on them. Yet, all we have done is due to Jesus Christ. Revelation 4, 10 through 11 says, Then the 24 elders fall down before him, who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by you will they exist and were created. Revelation 4, 10 through 11. That's the church in heaven after the rapture, worshiping Jesus Christ, the 24 elders. Amazing. And so the prayer had the purpose to live a sanctified life to impart a reward at the coming of Jesus for the Thessalonians at the rapture. Wow. What a prayer. Paul praying for the Thessalonians. The prayer was for themselves to be guided back to Thessalonica. The prayer was for the growth in agape love by the Thessalonians. And the prayer had the purpose to live in sanctified life to impart a reward at the coming of Jesus for the Thessalonians. Fatherly love. He loved the Thessalonians. They loved him. Very short letters, but powerful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Your love and goodness, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just, um, Lord, your grace and your patience with us and how you desire to press us towards the mark and as we grow and mature. We thank you for each other. We thank you for just everything you do for us, Lord, for the love you put in our heart, for the desire and the passions that you've given us, Lord, for you and each other. And we pray, Lord, that we would honor you in all things. As you're praying, if, if you don't know Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. But only you can do that. God won't force you. If you're over the Internet and if you don't know Jesus Christ, God would have you to call upon his name and repent of your sins, that he might forgive you and make you his child. He does this through grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But if you believe what he says about you, that you're a sinner lost, headed for hell, that he died for your sins and tasted death for you. And that if you call upon him to forgive you, he will do exactly that and give you eternal life. A simple prayer of repentance is what he always requires. You want to be born again, this is a simple prayer. Your prayer to him, not to us. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.